Well, we're going to honor the Word of God. We're going to look at it, reflect on it, not only at this church, but in our lives. In our lives, we, oh, how we need the perfect uh, picture, the mirror of the Word of God, how we need the lamp into our feet and the light into our path, how we need the, 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 the Holy Spirit to wash it over us and reveal it to us. So we are in a series called Moving Forward. Moving Forward. There's a quote on your notes from the great C.S. Lewis. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God or counterclaimed, attempted to be, claimed by Satan. Really, it's a, you know, he's obviously C.S. Lewis is, is very heady. We com- contemplate that, that everything is the Lord's, it's his. And then everything's trying to be counterclaimed um, by the deceiver, by Satan. But are we with Christ? In fact, are we in Christ? Then that means we're moving forward, no matter what it feels like in life, no matter the struggles. If I am in him and he is sovereign over his creation, he moves me forward. He moves me forward in difficulty, in every season, in everything. He is moving me. I'm a part of his plan and his purposes. So I'm not left up to myself to move forward. Amen? Amen. All right, now I can have faith and confidence and joy even in the midst of difficulty. So turn in the Bible, 1 Chronicles 21. 1 Chronicles 21. We're going to learn some things in the Word of God. Let me set this up. The golden age of Israel has peaked. David has subdued enemies, conquered created songs, it's economically prosperous, it's spiritually prosperous, it's just the, it's the place to be. And David is getting older, and as he gets older and he looks through, you know, looks through time and sees his young Solomon, oh, and how's this thing going to work out when he's gone? It seems like maybe his Faith staggers a little bit. We know the parallel to this 1 Chronicles 21 is 2 Samuel 24. And the Bible says that Israel um, sinned against the Lord and the anger of the Lord was roused against them. We don't know what the specific sin is. We don't know what happened, but we know that the grace of God was frustrated. And when the grace of God is, steps back a little bit, the deceiver comes in and starts whispering. He starts accusing, alluring are persuading, which is where we find David in 1 Chronicles 21. All right, 1 through 13, here we go. Look up screens, look at your apps or your Bibles. Let's look at this. Now Satan stood against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, that's his nephew, that's one of his military commanders, and to the leaders of the people. So not just Joab's there, but you know his, uh, his confidants, his advisors. Go number Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan, way in the north, and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make, a, make his people a hundred times more than they are. But, my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Let me stop there. This took over nine months to do. It gives us a specific amount in, um, in Samuel there. Nine months to do a census in Israel. Verse 5. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had one million and one hundred thousand men who drew the sword which is a huge military for that size of the country. Huge. And Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword, but he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab, because those were gods. The Levites were God's people. They didn't even fight. And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, that's one of the prophets, one of the advisors to David. David's seer, that's another word for prophet, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things to choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. 
So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose yourself either three years of famine or three months to defeat, to be defeated by your foes with the sword or your enemies overtaking you or else three days, three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with, all, with an angel and the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what I'm... Consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. There's always times in our life that there are proposed forwards that may not be God's forwards, right? There's doors that may open or things that may look good that may not be. David encounters that in his life. David encounters this time where it says, well, you know what? I'm going to get an, I'm, I'm going to see how big Israel is. I'm going to make sure that I'm prepping for my son. And I also want to make sure that we have everything we need. There's one problem. Israel is not David's. Israel is God's. And David steps in to the shoes of God and says, I'm going to make sure Israel is going to be okay after I'm gone. And that is the pride and great sin we see here. This is the reason why such a horrible plague, so all these things going on. Now, God's grace will be seen in this because we're going to talk about the first half of this this week and the next half of the chapter next week because it's a long story. But David steps in and says, I'm going to have to take over this I, because I don't know how it's going to work when I'm gone. Let me get a census. Let me see how big we are. Let me get things more organized because I'm Israel now. Just in his heart, pride and, and a vain glory comes up because he forgot Israel is no man's, no king's. Israel is God's as we are his. So these are the things that we see in this. So let's look at moving forward, how we can learn some things and avoid some things that David kind of fell into. Let's look at this. Now Satan stood up against Israel, verse 1, and moved David to number Israel. It's that same devil, that same Satan that we find in the garden that is in David's life that exists our adversary today. Now he's a defeated foe. But there are times that we're allured. There's more than one persuader, more than one allure, enticer. It's Satan and also our, uh, our flesh. Remember, the, that's what James says, can pull us away to make bad decisions. Decisions that are not just bad, but decisions that are number one on your notes. Big decisions without divine direct direction lead to destruction. They're destructive decisions. Destructive decisions. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, this is not decisions whether to get Chinese or get Mexican. But these are big, the big deals, the big things that we have to have divine direction on. And I was thinking, there's, you may have a little bit of a different list, but I just wrote a few things down on your notes right there that I see the most destructive things in people's lives are in, in these areas if we don't led by the Lord, if we don't have divine direction. They can be the most wonderful and fruitful, but without the Lord, they can be the most destructive. Number one is relationships. Relationships. Who is influencing us, right? Who we spend our time with, our closest friends. I'm not talking about um, you know, acquaintances and people you have to work with and stuff. Who you decide to let influence you and be your closest friends. If you're single, for sure who you marry. That's a major one. Um, if you have kids, who your kids are going to hang out with. Who they're going to marry. I have never prayed so much for little children than when I had a bunch of them. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I pray for relationships more than anything else. It just is the most natural, normal thing. I think about where we live, who's influencing them. We've seriously thought, okay, Lord, do we need to move? We're not mad at anyone. We're not upset. We just got a bunch of 11 and 12-year-olds that live all around us, and our kids are like 8, 7, 6, and 
You know, that, that, those dynamics are difficult. So we have prayed many times, okay, Lord, I need your direction for relationships with my kids. I need your directions for relationships in my life, how I spend my time. And it's the same with us, right? We need God's direction for relationships. I think another big one is vocation and location. What we do and where we live. That's a, that's a big one. And then another one would be time and resources, right? We need the hand of God, wisdom for those majors. If you have another one, you can write it down that you like. Say, okay, this is what I need God's direction. Now, I'm thinking about this in our own country. In 1787 was the, constant, the Constitutional Convention. We've got a fledgling nation who, by the grace of God, uh, won the, uh, their independence from England with help. We've got 13 colonies who are going to form this country. They're going to form this nation. Where they get together, it's pretty high security. They're trying to put together a constitution. Well, there's a problem. And the main problem is we got all these men that are leaders, and you get a bunch of leaders together, and they all want to be in charge and want their own way, right? (laughs) So there's a lot of stress going on at the Constitutional Convention. So much that they could not figure out what the state's rights would be in, in this new country. And they were struggling for days and days. There was a lot of stress. It was high stress. And one of the least godly, you could say, some say he's a deist. It doesn't seem to be in history. Benjamin Franklin stands up. And there is a man who was there who records, and we have that letter in U.S. history, records what he said. And I'm just going to paraphrase. He stood up and he addressed the president, Washington. He said, Mr. President, he said, this stress and this division is not going to help us. In fact, we seem to be to the breaking point. May I suggest that we take three days. We are going to take three days and we're going to take a break. We're all going to go decompress. In fact, there's a church right down the road and I would like to meet there every day. And on the fourth day, we're going to come back here. But we're not going to come back here the way we came. This is what we're going to do. We're going to appoint a chaplain to this constitutional convention. We're going to have the chaplain every day open us in prayer and... And I'm quoting this, um, divine direction for wisdom. I, a Bible study. We're going to have some kind of little Bible study too. So when we come back after three days break and hanging out of that church down there, we're going to open up in prayer. We're going to seek the, the divine guidance and we're going to see if the Lord can help us because there's no way we can put a country together like the world has never seen, right? The American experience, American experiment, excuse me. Um, and that is the way our country was founded by the hand of God instead of, dire- dire- instead of destruction, which it could have been. Every day in world history, this country breaks a new record for the longest single document running it. The Constitution of the United States in world history is the longest single document leading and running a country that has not been totally ratified and changed. Why? Because these men were so smart. Why? They said, God, we're going to have destruction without you, and we need your direction. Amen? Amen. So we, in the big things in life, and boy, do we thank God that they did that. In the big things in life, we say, God, I'm not going to move until I get your direction. I'm not going to move until this happens. All right, let's keep looking here. Verse 3. So there's a unique dynamic here. Remember I said Joab is uh, David's nephew. He's a warrior. He's a fighter. And honestly, he's a short-fused, bloodthirsty guy. I, there's no other way to say it in the Bible. He, he kills a lot of people. We have so many people recorded that guy killing people. I'm like, dude, you, you are a horrible ambassador. Don't ever send a Joab to be an ambassador. He'll just gut him and say, okay, we're going to do it the way I want to do it. But Joab, as dull as he kind of seems spiritual, he's a God-fearing man. He will not, David says on his deathbed, don't let this guy be in charge anymore, um, so, uh, Solomon. He said, no more, he's a bloody man, don't do it, because there could be a coup. And he, he, didn't, he wasn't always faithful to, to David. But as dull as he is, Joab steps forward and says, wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on a minute. Something's wrong here. 
Something is wrong here. Look at verse 3 in your, in your Bible. It says, And Joab answered, May the Lord make His people a hundred times more than they are. Look, I want Israel to be big too. I want it to grow and grow and just like God has spoken to Abraham, that they would be as the sand of the sea. I want that too, David. And I understand that a time in numbers that God said to number them. But this is, this, something's wrong in your heart. This isn't right. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I, can figure, I know something's not right in this one. Verse 3 says, Why then does my Lord require this thing? This is what's amazing about Joab. Joab is not a, a prophet. He's not a great spiritual leader. But you know what he notices? David is a straight shooter, right? He says, David, you're a straight shooter. I know you. And you're not shooting straight on this thing. That's what he's saying. Why do you want to do this? You're a straight shooter. You, you honor God. You're a man of integrity. But this is not the David I know. This is not the David I know. Number two on your notes. Be most watchful about what is motivating you. We must be most watchful about what is motivating us to do anything. A conversation, a business thing, whatever it is, we are watchful over these things because the problem was what? David's heart motivation. That's what was off in this. Proverbs 4.23 says it so clearly, and it's all throughout the Bible, but just Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. One translation, the Darby translation says this, Keep thy heart more than anything else that is guarded. If you're going to have security in any area of your life, put the fences up, get the cameras high def on your heart. Because out of it flow the issues of life. And even Joab was saying, David, what's your motivation in this? Why are you motivated to do this thing? So we're going to be most watchful this year about what motivates us. And we have our motives right before God, man, everything just works well. We can move forward with right motives, right? This is what's amazing. You can move forward with the Lord without perfect performance if you have the right motives. You cannot move forward with God even if you can bat a thousand, but your motives aren't right. Amen? Amen. He will give grace. He'll help you in weaknesses. He'll help you in business. He'll help you with relationships if your heart and your motives are right. To honor God, to obey His Word, He'll help you in all those things. In fact, his strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. Okay, so if we'll keep our motives right, we are good. I want to show you something in the Bible I never saw. Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to read... Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read 47 through 56. We're going to read three different stories. I was studying this week and I saw this. Like, I never saw that. I, look at that. I, that makes so much sense now. Luke 9, we're going to read 47 through 56. Okay, don't, okay, you're already, I'm, let me get it, not mess this up. Don't, don't look at 46. We're going to read 47 and forward. Don't look at 46. You probably already did, didn't you? Strick, stricken that from your memory. Strike that. 47. Look up on the screens. I prepped it with AV. Look on the screens. Verse 47. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him, took the little child, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be the greatest, or great. We've heard that before. So first thing Jesus has to say, i got to teach these disciples. We're going to have to have a, a, a lesson here. Okay, let me show you how that this is a race to the bottom, and we're all going to serve just like I came. Now, let's keep going. Now John answered and said to him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. I already got in trouble with Jesus. He already had to do the lesson with the kid. I already don't like this. Let's spiritually up a little bit. Um, let's change the subject. John's going to change the subject real quick. Listen, Master, we saw someone. They were casting out demons. Don't worry about the kids. We messed that up already. Uh, in your name, he says, But Jesus said to him, Do not forbade him who is 
For, for he who is not against us is on our side. Oh, my goodness. Two strikes. Oh, this is just, ugh. Now it came to pass, this is back to back to back. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as he went, he entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. They were in the north. you got to go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem, right? And the, the priests, they used to go all the way around and stuff. Jesus is going right through. He's been there before. Remember the woman at the well? But they would not receive him this time because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. They felt rejected. They, they were half-breeds. They wanted, he loved them, and he spent much time with them the first time. And everything was good. Jesus wasn't mad at them. Jesus wasn't upset when they were not less than, but they have a rejection mentality a little bit and said, look, I'm going to do the will of the Father. I'm not upset with you, but I'm going to Jerusalem because I have to die on the cross. Well, they get aggravated because I want you to stay a week, Jesus, and you're only going to stay a day. So they get frustrated. And when his disciples, James and who? John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did. Oh my goodness, John. You go from the issue with the kids to now you don't want anyone doing ministry any other way except the way we think it should be done. Now you've taken another step and what are you doing now? Now you're so frustrated, (laughs) you just want people to be burned up. This is not the loving John that I know in the Bible. Who is this guy? What happened to James and John? There's a reason they're the sons of thunder. What in the world happened to their motivation? What happened? It was just a teaching lesson with with the little kids. Jesus wasn't mad. He was just telling them, look, if you're... You know, I don't care if they're doing ministry a little different. If they're not forced, they're against us. Now they're, in, now they're in Samaria. They've come so far. Kill these people. What happened? This is what I never saw in the Bible. It's all because of verse 46, which none of you looked at before, right? You messed up my crescendo. Now go to where we all started in 46. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Go back to 56. Let's make sure we know biblically this is right. But he turned and rebuked them and said to them, and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You're messed up. Your motivations are wrong, right? Is that clear in the Bible? Now go to 46. 46, right? Luke 9, 46. What, how does our story start? How does it all start? Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Oh, how a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? They got a seed of of frustration, of pride in their heart in verse 46. You see that? Then Jesus has to pull them aside and say, look, we're going to do things. Watch, see how this little kid is? This is the way we're going to do it. And then John says, well, I'm going to change the subject. Let's talk about something else. And then they're in, the, in Samaria. <gasps> what happened? They let some pride, some frustration and anger get into their heart. A dispute arose among them saying, who would be the grace? They started jockeying for position. And the motives of their heart got off, right? And then look at the fruit of their life that followed all the way. This is the time span from, was weeks and weeks from when Jesus, before they left him, going through Samaria and then going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And they're dealing with this issue issue because they were not most watchful about what motivated them. I never realized that's where they were. I was like, man, that's a bad week. That is a bad week for the disciples. They just struggled. And the reason is right there in verse 46. And I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Does that make sense? Amen. Amen. So I realized, man, I need to be most watchful in my heart. I tell you, I don't want any dispute to rise up in me. Not here, not in my home, not with friends, not anything. I wanted to make sure I didn't have any disputes this week. I didn't even talk about what happened with the saints all week because I didn't want any disputes in my heart. So I just left it alone. I just said, that's yours, Lord. 
even though my neighbors were ready to mutiny. All right, let's go back to our text. Right there in verse 3 still. That was the first question of Joab. David, um, what's motivating you? The second question was, verse 3, why should he be, David, he's talking in third person, why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? David, I know I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I know the motives of your heart. That, that's not David talk. I know the way David talks, and that's not David. And secondly, he says, David, don't put this thing on. Don't, you're the king. You're in a robe of purple. You've got a crown on your head. Don't wear this guilt. Don't put on this sin. Oh, don't do this, David. Don't do this. And it's not only Joab that's saying it, but it's his advisors too. But we see that the word of King David prevailed, and it's going to happen anyways. I started thinking about that. Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? You know what that tells me? Number three on your notes. Sin is an ugly look on Christians. Oh, it's bad. It's Pastor Stephen in leather skinny jeans. That was not, I'm, that was not the Lord. I, I shouldn't have. That should, that's, it is an ugly look on us, isn't it? Joab's saying, David, this is not who you are. You don't wear clothes like this. It is an ugly look. I know that's um, poetic. That's a lot of license. Thank you for giving me that for that point. But it actually is biblical. It's very biblical because uh, it's all through Colossians talking about putting on Christ and putting off the old man. So let's read that in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 8 through 14. Listen to how he, Paul addresses this. But now you yourselves are to put what? Off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off. Literally, it's a clothing, like taking that off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Jew, Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, clothe yourself, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Well, that is a very clear what we're supposed to be wearing, right? I was thinking about this and I was like, I wonder what this looks like in fashion world or whatever. I'm not a fashion person, y'all know that. I was thinking, what, are, what, is, what does it look like? Okay, I'm not making fun of people, all right? I'm just telling you, these people got paid to do this. This is what we look like as Christians with malice, our anger, our frustration, our disputes. Let's look at this first one. This is what we look like right here. This is the, he got paid to do this, okay? If they paid me a lot of money, y'all could make fun of all. I'd laugh all the way to the bank. I'd put this on. I'd strut around. That's fine. New minivan and college paid for for the kids. This is what we look like, or this. I, I don't know. I have no, there's no, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a human zoo. <laughs> Let's see what else we got. Well, that's just making me hungry. <laughs> I do love the baguette, or maybe that's a French loaf on the top of the head there. Um, she, Sesame Street, she didn't make it. Um, I don't know. He tried out for the Avengers movie and didn't make it. I don't know. It ju- it's a bad look on us. Malice, anger, frustration, all those things, that's not what God's created us to be, right? It's not who we are. That's not at all who we are. All right. Sin is an ugly look on us. We're not wearing that. That's what's great. I can be bad at outside things, 
and clothing or whatever else. But if I can do this right, then I'm good. Everything's fine. I'll still be successful. So as I said, Joab is going to spend nine months, it's actually nine months and 20 days, on a big circuit to take a census. I mean, it takes a long time. Now, I think about David in Jerusalem, in his home. God gave him over nine months of grace to turn and repent from that. You know the, the Lord leaned on him on that one. He said, David, don't do this. David, you don't have to do this. The grace of God was still there for nine months plus on David, waiting, waiting. For he could have sent writers out and said, Job, stop all this stuff, come back. And so we see the grace of God for months and months waiting, but finally the grace of God is done. And there's a time when the grace of God is done and judgment comes. There will be a time on this planet when His grace is done and judgment will come, right? That's what He said. And so we see it here also. So this is a very unique picture. The prophet comes in and says, judgment's coming. You knew you were sin as soon as Joab gets back with the report, which should excite him in the natural. It's a huge army. A quarter, one, one in every four to five in Israel could bear a sword. Our military's like eight. You know, we're not even in the top 10 military. We're not even in the top 20. We're not even in the top 50. We're number 75. I was looking at this because I wanted to compare. The U.S., we're number 75 on population to military. It's under 10%. Number one is North Korea. I'm a, over half of every person there is in their military. That speaks of a despondent, desperate place. That you're going to survive if you're going to make it. It's like 56% of every person in their population is military. I could not believe that we were so low. Think about how big our military is. But per population, that's called the grace of God. That we're a world power with like 6.2 or 7% of our U.S. of our population is military. That's the hand of God only. Okay, that got off on that. Too much research. Okay, so three things. Get, the prophet comes in and says, look, there's going to be three years of famine. There's going to be three months of defeat by your enemies or three days of a national plague. And David, I want you to think about this hard because it's going to be on your head. You've got to choose. He falls on the ground and he says, God, it's my fault. He calls him sheep. He said, please leave these sheep alone. This is a Christ type. But as the head suffers, so the whole body does, right? He says, you've got to choose. So let's go to verse 13 and let's look at David's choice and how we can really learn something about moving forward in life. So we're in 1 Chronicles 21. Gad has given his speech and said, I'm going to go back. Tell me what your choice is. Verse 13. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. I mean, he's just honest. This is more than I can handle. I killed giants, but this is too much. I had faith to take a ragtag group from the cave of Odulam to, to become a, a mighty army, but this is too much. That's what he says. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Now this is a unique statement for a king. Let me tell you why. Because the three months of famine would have affected all the regular people, but the king would have been okay, wouldn't he have? He would have made it. His family would have not starved. Other families. The poor would have been the first to be affected, right? If he would have chosen the three months of famine. He could have avoided it. He could have said... I can avoid this. I'll just step out. Let God deal with that. The three months of being defeated by your foes. Again, he's the king. His royal guard is uh, 12,000 soldiers. He probably would have been safe, right? They may have killed the outskirts of Israel. He may have lost some land and Israel would have shrunk, but they wouldn't have got all the way to Jerusalem in three months. There's no way. Again, he's not affected. But he says, no, no. 
I'll get in the same boat with everyone else. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. I'm going to step down. He says, I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of God. And the plague, that's indiscriminate, right? Anybody can die of sickness. They're not in some oxygen chamber. They're, they're, they're not exempt from this thing. He says, I'm going to put myself with everybody else and my family and my little ones. Oh, yeah, and by the way, the reason some of this started, my young son Solomon, the brilliant you know, teenager who's going to run this thing for a long time, I'm going to put him in harm's way too because I'm sick of playing God. I'm not going to do it. I did it for that brief time, and I'll never do it again. Everyone in my family and everyone I love, we're all right here, and we're going to live or die by the mercy of God. There we see the man after God's own heart. There we see how to move forward. There we see how to live an overcoming life. Lastly, on your notes, the discipline of God is greater than the mercy of this world. The discipline of God is greater than the mercy of this world. Proverbs 27 says this clearly in a unique way. It's right here on your screens. Let's look at it. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Is he the friend that sticks closer than a brother? Faithful is the discipline of God, the loving hand and discipline of God. This is what's amazing about this picture, that he, he understands that if I fall on the mercy of God, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, it's greater than the best the world has to offer. Now, he's, is, he a political, is he politically savvy? Oh, yeah. Is he a good military leader? You betcha. But he says, nope. I won't touch that. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to let God be God and make the decisions in my life and in my family's life. And he falls in the mercy of God. That's how you move forward. That's how you do it right there. It's like, oh, yes, I see that there. I want to do that. You know, this is a spiritual thing to fall on the mercy of God and to listen to his discipline. I'm going to tell you, it's an earthly one, too. And I'm going to just use my personal life as an example. This is a major issue we're dealing with in our culture and in our, in our world right now. When I was 18 years old, I was an intern, family life, and I made a lot of dumb things. Not immoral things, just dumb things. You know, you're a kid, you just do dumb things. So, you know, I'm keeping kids in middle school after service and yelling into mics and put a hole in the wall and all kind of stuff, whatever. So I'm, I find myself very quickly in Francis Martin's office. I've told part of this story, but not this angle. And I'm sitting in Francis Martin's office, and I'm scared. He, was a, he just passed. We had a wonderful funeral uh, a few weeks ago. It was wonderful to reminisce on the little bit of time I got to spend with him. And I'm sitting in his office, and he says, Stephen, he said, listen to me now. He said, we're not going to do things like this. You're not going to yell into the mic. Don't spit. I don't care if you have braces. Just swallow more. <laughs> it's true. It's a true story. I used to spit. The, the room was like this big. And those middle school kids in there, and none of them would sit on the front row. I'm like, what's the problem? It's because I had braces, and I would spit on them. <laughs> that's, that's horrible. And so they would sit on the back, one behind the front row. Oh, you know what? There's not one person on this front row either. I didn't get any better at it. <laughs> that's wrong. And so they, but they didn't want to tell me. Finally, one of the older ones who I kind of knew the eighth grader, he's like, Stephen, you know, your braces, you spit a lot. And, you know, it's like four and a half feet between the, the, the altar and the front. Those kids are sitting back like this all the time. They were so respectful, you know, middle school, they're just like that. He said, these are things you're not going to do. Now, listen, this, this was a life changer for me. I had to decide if I was going to submit to that as God, as unto the Lord, or say, I'm done living like this. I could have got mad at him, 
that that old man doesn't know what he's talking about. I know middle school better than him. He hadn't even been in middle school for 100 years. I'm 18. I was in middle school five years ago. He don't know nothing. I could have hardened my heart. I could have said, I'm done with this and all this junk. That happened in my life every few years. Every few years with authority, they would bring me in and say, listen, you can't do that. You got to do this. You got to do that. Please don't do that again. They were in charge, right? The direction of my life and the blessed, the, that God has blessed me as because I never got mad. I, it hurt. Now, don't get me wrong. Even to tears. It's not fun to cry in front of the pastor, but I've done it. But the direction of my life, and because I have been able to move forward, not leaps and bounds, but move forward and be married, move forward and raise kids, move forward in, in this church, is because I listened to my authority. I didn't let my word prevail. David said, the Bible says, David's word prevailed against everyone else. And he didn't listen that time. And it altered the course of Israel. Now, God's grace came in, but I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people who alter the course of their life because they want their way and their word has to prevail. And I'm just going to tell you in love, don't do that. Don't do that in your marriage. Don't do that with your children. Don't do that with your job. Throw yourself on the mercy of God and let Him do it. He does it so much better. It is a miserable, bitter, angry life to drive by church and be mad at people. To have thoughts of anger and frustration in your heart that you maybe you got when you were 10 or 15 or 20. That's not God's will for your life, is it? No, no. I want you to be free. And I'm going to tell you, I had to deal with that. I had to deal with Terry Darnell, who got mad at me about things or whatever. I just dealt with all these people. I'm not, and we have great relationships. This is how you move forward in life. And I want you to move forward. Amen? Amen. Okay, I got off. Stand up. That's it. I'm done. That was my spiel. Let me tell you this simply, very simply happened in my life this week as we get ready to close. Doing my study thing, I got a call from wonderful Miss Lisa. We had just done a leadership uh, last Saturday. Fun. It was great just to hang out and eat food. Just a leadership uh, training about feedback because we're going to create a culture of freedom and feedback in this church where we love each other and we can talk. And this is like it's real what we do here. And it's wonderful. So we did this video on feedback and the groups broke up and it was good. Well, she called me about some little bitty thing. And I thought, that's right. That's something simple. But I want to take that feedback. I want to move forward in life. And I just want to give this as a, it, it's a testimony, but it, it's just a good little thing. Come up, Lisa. All right. Go ahead. Okay. I was listening to a teaching on evangelism. And he started out kind of just in a broad sense, talking about all the ways that we evangelize, whether it's revivals or outreaches into the community. And then he turned it and he took it into his local church body and started talking to them. And he said a couple things. Uh, one thing he said was that there's no second first impressions. And he made the statement that when somebody walks through the doors of the church, that first impression that they get is pretty much what they're going to believe about the church, even if they come in and it's really good preaching and good worship. But he said something that really just jumped out at me. And he said, from now on in our church, we are no longer going to call first-time people visitors. Because he said the word visitor sets a connotation in your mind that you're not a part of, that you don't belong, more like it's just a temporary type thing. So he said, we're going to start calling these people our guests and our honored guests at that. And after he said that, it brought back to my memory something that we had discussed when we had the leadership conference I shared, we were talking, I was in the group with the greeters, and we were talking, and I shared how one Sunday I came in here, and the, the lady who greeted me at the door said, hey, Lisa, you know, how are you doing? And at first, my like, conviction came on me because I was like, I don't remember her name. <laughs> you know, I can remember her name. But then it just so blessed me that she remembered mine. 
And then as I was talking to her, she said, hey, I noticed I haven't been seeing you. And it's because I had been working and I hadn't been here. So it went from her not only knowing my name, but her recognizing that I hadn't been at church. And it really, it, it's just something that I've been chewing on all week. And, you know, I understand the importance of a name because something that I do in the world, like when I go to a store, when I'm checking out, I will look at the person's name, you know, their name tag. And if I don't under, you know, if I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I'll ask them. And before I leave, I look them straight in the face and I say to them, thank you, Larry, I appreciate you. And I do it not, it's not insincere and it's not flattery. I appreciate people who work in retail. I would not do it. I mean, I'm the girl who lasted one week at Burger King, okay? That's me. So, and that's, I've noticed something about in doing that. I mean, 99.9% .9 of the time when you do that, that person's going to look at you and smile. Because I'm telling you, that's a hard job. Standing on your feet, not making hardly any money, and putting up with every attitude that comes along the way. So I have made a determination that I'm going to learn every single person's name in here. You know, um, it's just so important. Church, this church and any church has to grow from the inside out. And it goes back to relationships. It's all about relationships, our relationships with one another. And ultimately, it's that relationship that other people see in us that we can lead them into a relationship with Christ. So I just wanted to share that. That's just a, and it was just simple, little practical thing. But when you really think about it, it makes a big difference. So that was it. A culture of openness and feedback is a life-giving one. And David had that, and what happened when he got off and he stopped moving forward, that's, he stopped that. So we're going to have that. Let's just spend a couple minutes with Jesus, reflect on this word right here. If there's anything in your heart, any anger or frustration, the Bible says take that off of you. Rid yourself of all malice, anger, deceit, lies, rid yourself of it. Take it off and be clothed with Christ. If we are clothed with Christ, we will shine like a city on a hill in a dark, dark world. So let's just spend a couple minutes with Jesus. Got a few minutes. Let the, let the Lord speak to you about things going on in your life. been reflecting on this word we're going to spend it we're going to pray corporately for our uh, community your friends your family who have been hurt because maybe they didn't throw themselves in the mercy of God or things went bad and there really was some destruction in their life that they dealt with some plague now, next week, we're going to look at the amazing grace of God and the miracle that happens. But for this week, let's pray together. You know people, they have a bad view of church. They have a bad view of um, something that happened. Maybe it brought some destruction. We're just going to pray and ask God to do a miracle in their lives. Y'all pray with me.
Father, we come to you together, firstly saying we're yours. We rid ourselves of all malice or anger, frustration. We take it off. All disappointment, whatever we've dealt with in our life. And it's real, Lord. It's, it's, it's not fake. It's real, Lord. But we, we put it on you. We throw ourselves to the mercy of God. Now, all these people, their, their names and, and faces are coming into our mind. And we pray for them right now, God. Lord, I pray that they would throw themselves in the mercy of God. That the anger and the frustration that they felt with people would be gone, would be obliterated, Lord. That you would do a deep and true work. Lord, where there was division, you would bring unity. Lord, where there's loss, you would bring you would bring it back, Lord. Where their people are separated, you would bring a healing and a restoration to relationships like only you can do. You, in your mercy, are the relationship fixer. It's you, God. So I thank you that you're doing that. I thank you that we're going and doing whatever you tell us to do. Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us in this area? Would you lead and guide us? We want to move forward in our lives and in relationships, Lord. We see people that are stuck in hurt or frustration. Or every conversation always leads to something negative. Lord, I thank you that you are freeing these people as we pray for them, as we think about them. Lord, as we minister to them, Lord. We thank you that you're doing that in our life. We thank you, Lord God, that you're a great God. We thank you that we can throw ourselves on the mercy of God. You have regrets in your life, things you don't like the way you handled it, especially maybe as a leader, as a parent. Right now, be free and throw yourself on the mercy of God. Lord, we throw ourselves in the mercy of God, on the mercy of God. Even though we've made mistakes, even though we've didn't do things just right. We just throw ourselves on the mercy of God and we thank you, Lord, that your mercy and grace is coming, that you will do a miracle in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our mess up, Lord, you will do a miracle. We know that it's in your word. We'll look at it more next week and we thank you, God, that you're doing this in our life in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Now let's thank him. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Enjoy the game. Or not.